The process of landing investment banking job offers can often feel like a black box, which leads to confusion and anxiety for most of the candidates going through it. Hey, my name is Sam Shaw, and I'm the founder of Wall Street Mastermind. I've personally coached numerous students on how to successfully break into top-tier investment banks, including Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, Centerview, Evercore, and PJT Partners, just to name a few. On this podcast, I'm going to help you demystify the investment banking recruiting process by sharing what the clients of Wall Street Mastermind have done to get results like these. Enjoy this episode. First of all, guys, I'm really excited about this interview today. I have Will on with me. Will's a good friend of mine. Um, for whatever reason, I always knew that Will worked in finance, but then I never realized that uh, Will used to work in restructuring. And then I found out that he worked in restructuring this past week. And I was like, what, you worked in restructuring? And I was like, you know how many questions I get, get about restructuring nowadays from, from college students? And I was like, I got to get you on here. And uh and talk about, you know, just your career path, because obviously your career path has been super interesting and uh, you're going to be able to do a way better job at explaining, you know, restructuring and uh, some of these things that you've done so far than I ever would. So, you know, I don't want to pretend to be an expert at everything, which I'm not. And so uh, super excited to have you on today, man. So thanks for, uh, thanks for talking to us. Of course. Thanks for having me on. I'm Uh, glad we got to talking. Yeah, for sure. Um, to start off, I mean, so I kind of already teased this when I uh, sent out the the email blast about this live stream. So some people kind of have a preview, but like, I'm not trying to interview you or anything, but can you just kind of like walk us through your kind of your career progression to date? Like, you know, after college, what did you do and what have you done up to this point? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll give you kind of the uh abridged version but uh so i grew up in virginia i went to uva i was actually pre-medicine for all of uh all my undergrad actually okay. and uh as you get to know me you'll, you'll know i have a lot of fomo uh, i think sam already knows that and while i was uh, a fourth year in college um i lived in the fraternity house a lot of my friends were actually part of the mcintyre business school they were all kind of cramming for um banking interviews essentially and they were actually even doing that the semester before um and i was always kind of watching from a distance uh but come fourth year i was a bit uh i was uh, kind of had a chip on my shoulder at the time and i was like all right this can't be like that hard it's not you know it's not medicine for example so i uh, opened up um and i and i so i talked to some of them and they kind of mentioned me through how to get through some of these interviews i i think there was like the vault guide to finance i don't know how popular that still is um but from there, I was able to to get a job in in, uh, in Wall Street. I had a couple of offers, um, one to Rothschild, one to Bank of America. And given kind of finance wasn't my background, I, I picked the smaller of the two firms. And that was probably 80% of the decision right there. And so, mind you, this was 05, um, yeah. 2005. So there were the, the supply-demand dynamics of like the job market was was very probably very different um even from when you graduated even from and probably especially until now um so i joined rothschild and it's kind of a boutique investment bank uh european based but big presence in the us they had uh, a restructuring group and they had an m a group and so you go in and by the end of training which was sort of that six week kind of boot camp um type training uh you pick which group and for the most part, they try to place you um, as so long as not everyone wants to be in one group versus the other, yeah. they kind of accommodate. 
And the choice between restructuring and M&A was, was kind of interesting too, because um, M&A was more of like the cooler kids were going into that group. Um, you tended to see uh, a lot of deals, more deals, and they were generally more, I would say straightforward, um, repeatable. Yeah. And a lot of those guys ends up um, having pretty good uh, exit opportunities. Yeah. And even at that time, this was 06 when I started, people were already thinking about, hey, what do I want to do after banking is buy side kind of where I should be going. And so have not changed, I guess. Something, okay. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> the and restructuring was just a little bit, it was kind of like nerdier, but there was also a little bit more of like a badge of honor if you went through that group. Cause at the time they were, they worked a little bit harder. The deals were just a little bit weirder. It was a bit more complexity um, and a few more personalities specifically in that group at that time. As in like um, senior bankers or? Yeah, senior bankers. Um, a lot of them were, kind of restructuring bankers for pretty much their whole career. Um, and you'll learn that once you get into restructuring, it's a very small world, whether it's the advisory committee uh, uh, world or whether it's the legal world, uh, everyone kind of knows each other and, and the buy side world as well. Um, so I picked restructuring. Um, definitely don't regret it because it, it was definitely a more intimate type experience. I think of my analyst class, there was 16. Uh, six went into restructuring and they're they're some of my best friends today even um, mm -hmm. so that that was that was great um, 06 to 07 was a pretty light year for bankruptcies let's say so right. everyone was kind of scrounging around for for kind of deal experience as, a, as an analyst they wanted to get kind of stacked with whomever senior banker they, they really yeah. I guess hit it off with during bank uh, training and 07 to 08 was interesting because that's sort of where in the first cracks in the uh, in the great financial crisis yeah. started to show itself. Um, it was also the year that everyone was still was also interviewing for kind of buy side roles. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's still the case, but everyone kind of interviews like a year early. Um, yeah. Now, now, now people interview um, at the beginning of their first year, believe it or not. <laughs> nuts that's so nuts <laughs> august or uh well this year was different because of the pandemic so pe firms pushed it back but like last year um the pe firms the mega funds started recruiting in like august or september of, uh, of the first year and so people had no deal experience and they had just gotten to the desk and they're like oh you gotta you know come in and interview and do these lbo modeling tests and whatever so it's uh it's only getting crazier man I'm glad yeah. we're old. I'm glad we're old. So yeah. we didn't. We thought it was crazy <laughs> back then, but I can't really imagine being like a, a college student today and just the amount of pressure you have to go through. You know, everything's just getting accelerated, man. This is everything's nuts. getting harder. Everything's getting harder. It's like we talked about the other day, right? Everything's getting more competitive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I if it was August of my first sort of few months in banking, I I would have had zero to show for. I don't. I barely, like, I don't know what the I barely knew how to do comps. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but no, that does close. So then 07 or 08, you start recruiting yeah. the buy side. I started, I started recruiting and work was also picking up because the economy was kind of seeing some of the cracks, um, especially in the credit markets. Um, I locked down an offer to actually join Oak Tree Capital in Los Angeles uh, as an analyst in their high yield bonds group. And Honestly, uh, moving to California was kind of one of my dreams, even even when I was interviewing or applying for colleges. Um, 
and it ultimately ended up staying in state, but this was kind of like a once in a lifetime thing. Um, life circumstances kind of permitted. So accepted, I remember that, uh, accepted over 24 hour period or so or so over a weekend. And then that's like how much time they gave you, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much, I think I asked for like another 12 hours or something extremely small. Um, but I finished up, uh, I finished up restructuring in 08 and then joined, uh, Oak tree in August of 2008, actually. And so the high yield bonds group, uh, had been around since Oak Tree started in, in I think, 95. It was one of the, kind of their their legacy flagship type strategies. But uh, by September, when Lehman went down in 08, uh, half the portfolio was actually distressed. And so it's actually an interesting experience because of the analyst class that joined or the associate class that joined Oak Tree, um, not a lot of restructuring bankers, actually. And so I was literally sitting on the other side of... Uh, of the table, so to speak, on um, on some of these investments, and they were investments that kind of my bosses and the group had already got gotten themselves into. They were bonds that uh, were trading at kind of fifty cents on dollar, and I think four of them had to go through a workout process over over the next probably eighteen months or so. Yeah, um, I would say by twenty ten, um, I was kind of through all that, and I was working with kind of the senior analyst to to kind of get our money back. And by that point, the high yield bond market was fairly normal. Um, I applied to business school at that point and joined uh, Wharton in 2011. Um, I did uh, two years there. My internship was actually in Hong Kong. I don't know if I ever told you that. That was at uh, D. Shaw. And I was doing a little bit of corporate credit, some equities and some convertible debt. It was uh, across their trading um, desk and so just a little bit of diversified experience um, yeah. there. Uh, really cool. I met one of my my boss there was probably one of my closest mentors. Um, he actually came to um, Cecilia and I's wedding. So I don't know if you if you met him or not, but um, <laughs> it was it was around that time he was actually trying to get me to move back to Hong Kong, and uh, okay. Cecilia actually could not. Um, she doesn't speak Mandarin. And so to work out of Hong Kong, you, you kind of have to be Mandarin speaking. So right. it would have been out of the, she would have been out of Singapore and just long distance wasn't, wouldn't, right. wouldn't be great. So, right. but ultimately um, I'm glad I took that just because of the connections, if nothing else. And uh, after business school, um, I was, I actually got an offer to go back to the high yield group at Oak Tree, which ultimately I took, but the last minute uh, one of my bosses in the high yield group at Oak Tree was kind of spinning off and starting the loan platform still within Oak Tree, but um, it would be kind of dedicated to loans, leveraged loans and not bonds. The strategy would be, would employ some leverage, which I think Oak Tree was generally um, pretty cautious on. So it, it was kind of a startup group that um, had a, had a more aggressive strategy, I would say. Um, so my boss and I um, knew each other from the from the pre-business school days, and kind of he convinced me to join him. So I did that for uh, for three years. So I joined, rejoined Oak Tree in 2013, and we grew the senior loan book from I was a third kind of person in the group. Uh, we grew up to about nine or ten people. We started with three billion in AUM. That's the benefit of working for kind of a big asset manager. And then by the time I left, we had about. Um, eight billion in AUM, eight or nine. And wow. the growth was kind of just plateauing at that point. Um, Oak Tree 
has a, has a very siloed approach to investing. So each group kind of sticks within its lane, whether it's a certain asset class or a certain strategy. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, I wanted a little bit more flexibility in what what I can invest in. And at the same time, uh, Angel Island was actually looking for someone to lead their industrials group. Uh, happened to be in San Francisco, so we moved up here in 2016. Um, and what's interesting is, uh, so I led the industrials group since 2016, investing across uh, loans and bonds, mainly loans, over the past three years. But when COVID hit last year. Uh, there was just a lot of dislocation and helped uh, start, I guess, what we call the dislocation fund uh, last year. And a lot of that included um, taking some companies through through bankruptcy, this time on the on the creditor side, um, rather than at Rothschild on, on the advisory debtor side. So the experience actually kind of took 15 years for me to kind of come real full circle. And uh, this year, I'm, I'm continuing to help on some of the more opportunistic strategies. So kind of higher yielding corporate credit um, ideas. Yeah. yeah. So Ooh. yeah, that's, that was, that was my career. That was, <laughs> there was a lot there to unpack because you've done a lot of really cool stuff. Um, and by the way, for those of you guys who are watching, I probably should have said this up front, but if you guys have questions for Will, um, feel free to drop it down in the comments. Uh, I don't know if you're watching this on YouTube or on Facebook um, or on LinkedIn, but um, we will try to find time um, towards the end of this conversation to get some of your questions in. Um, I'm I'm uh, selfish, so I'm going to get in my own questions first. But <laughs> <laughs> so um, you've done a lot of stuff there. Um, there's so many questions. So many questions I want to ask. So like, I guess to start out, like. Um, I'm trying to think what would be most helpful for people, but a lot of students nowadays are interested in restructuring, right? Uh, but I feel like a lot of people don't really quite understand what restructuring really is because uh, they just kind of read that, oh, there's a lot of restructuring deal flow right now, pandemic, a lot of companies are distressed, that's where the deal flow is, right? And so it's kind of like the I don't say like the flavor of the month, but it's kind of like in right now, right? But like for someone who's maybe watching this interview right now, maybe they're relatively new to banking or finance. They don't really know what restructuring is. Like, how would you explain what you do as a restructuring banker to like a sixth grader? Yeah, yeah. That was always a challenge. I would say my parents, <laughs> uh, trying to explain what I did to my parents was always, always a challenge. I always had it dumb it down as much as I could. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, ultimately, it's an advisory business. And so our, our group at Rothschild provided advice to companies. And these were not just any companies, they were generally companies that were going through financial distress. And so financial distress, meaning they owed money to, to people. And most often, it's they borrowed money in the form of issuing bonds or or loans and eventually you need to pay the creditors back and they they were essentially looking to be they were unable to do so um oftentimes these companies are um relatively good companies but they i would say two out of three things happen one they borrow too much money that's almost certainly always the case but then one of another two things happen either the industry trends or tailwinds um, 
kind of went against it, whatever that that might be in, in their industry, or the company kind of messed up. They messed up operationally, or the management team made some bad strategic decisions, um, but something needs to be fixed. And so oftentimes you borrow too much money and you couple it with one of those other two factors and sometimes two, um, you'll need to kind of fix the problem. And I would say the US has, has kind of mechanisms to, to kind of work it out through the courts. Um, that might not be all digestible for a sixth grader or six-year-old, but. Uh, well, that was pretty good. Like that, 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 I think that was pretty easy to understand. So basically, long story short, companies that borrow money, because a lot of companies that go out and they take on debt, right? right? Uh, when they borrow too much or nobody takes on so much debt to, to the point where they think like, oh, we're not going to be able to pay this back. No one does it on purpose. But right. sometimes bad things happen, right? Correct. Like if you're a blockbuster and then all of a sudden Netflix comes out of nowhere and no one rents DVDs anymore, like you weren't expecting that to happen, right? right? And so all of a sudden you realize you can't make the debt repayments, you can't pay back the principal or you can't pay back the interest. And now your lender is going to come after you and technically they have the right to, I guess, seize your assets or, you know, use that to pay themselves back. Right. Um, That's right. So if we go one step further, like when that happens, like, okay, let's say I'm a company and I have all this debt that I took out and I can't pay it back. Now you guys come in as bankers, and we don't need to get like super into the weeds because I know it's like we can get very technical, but like, I mean, what are some things you can do to help them get out of that bind, so to speak? Like, because I think there are probably yep. well, like, three or four main options where you can, you know, like different yeah. bankruptcies or whatever, right? Yep. How would you yeah. explain that? Yeah, yeah. Before I answer, to take a half step back, if you put yourself in the, in the company's shoes, whether it's the management team or the board, they're not usually going through these really kind of trough and dicey situations. And so that creates kind of the whole ecosystem of, of uh, these restructuring advisory banks. It's, they are there to kind of help walk the management team through some of these options, mm-hmm. um, which can be, and, and these management teams, they may not know who their lenders are. They may not know exactly who the creditors are, and they may not know kind of all the tools um, at their disposal. So oftentimes the easiest way is to just ask for an amendment, uh, to whatever agreement that they have with their creditors. So if it's a bond, they can amend the indenture. If it's a loan, they can kind of change the credit agreement. Maybe they have to extend the maturity of it, or maybe they ask for forgiveness and payment for of, of a coupon. And that often does, oftentimes does the trick, especially if there's a story um, about a turnaround on the company and the actual financials uh, associated with that. Sometimes that's not enough. And so you can take kind of slightly more um, drastic measures. So one option is to kind of raise more money and find new investors to put in money. And they can put in that money in the form of equity or debt or however these new investors can uh, can come to a, an agreement with the company that can essentially be used as money for the for the company to to take out some of the old investors and so a little bit of a shell game but ultimately that's usually a short term solution so it, it probably should again should be coupled with a turnaround story sometimes when when the financials kind of the forecast just doesn't look that rosy you might just have to 
equitize some of the debt. And so you can do that through maybe like a debt for equity swap. And so that can be done where essentially lenders um, that lent the money, lent the company money before they'll take a haircut to, to their loan. So if I lent, you know, the company a hundred, hundred bucks, um, maybe it's not realistic that I get all of that hundred back, but maybe it's realistic that I'll get 50 back and half of that's in the form of equity, um, which I can own the company a little bit and then sell that ownership stake later. And then the other half can be in, in debt. And so that that's where it gets to be pretty complex because the details matter there. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of different options and there's usually a lot of different creditors and it also can be, none of these are all are mutually exclusive either. Um, so yeah. that could also be coupled with new money coming in. And so an advisor can kind of help sort out all of the, all the stakeholders, um, kind of read, read into their incentives ahead of time, um, and kind of work with the company, to solve that out. And then that can be done. All of this can be done at during in bankruptcy, which, uh, which is through a court process or out of bankruptcy, which is essentially just negotiations between multiple parties. Um, and so like all, like those three options that you just talked about, right? Like right. You can ask for an amendment with your creditor, you mm -hmm. can um, raise more money, right? Either debt or equity, or you can um, do a debt for equity swap I guess you guys could, I mean, a lot of times you guys are advising the company, that's the stress, but probably sometimes you're also advising the creditor on the other side. Right. Like either way, it's kind of like the buy side, sell side equivalent of a traditional M&A deal. There's two sides to every yeah. deal and they both need advice. Right. And you're trying to help your client, whoever you're advising, get the best terms, so to speak. Like you're negotiating the best terms for your client, essentially. Yeah, that's right. That's a good, that's a good parallel for sure. Because um, I was like, I mean, okay, so if you ask for an amendment from the lender, I was like, you probably have to give something in return, right? It's probably like give and take, like, yeah, give us two more years to pay you back. But, you know, I don't know what they give in return, like higher interest or something. I don't know, right? A fee or higher interest um, yeah. or stricter, more restrictive. Um, credit agreement covenants and indentures yeah 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 more more restrictive terms and i mean like when you go out and raise debt or equity for a company that's already distressed i imagine that's not easy to do like it's not like you're you're taking a new sexy startup public or something it's like hey this company right. in trouble which is why they need to raise more money do you want to give us money so like i mean yeah. how do you i guess in that case you're really you're really having to sell the story of like why this company is going to be able to turn it around so that yep. investor is going to be willing to take that risk. And then I guess on the other side, it's you're going to have to compensate your investors for that risk in the form of, I don't know, giving them higher returns and is through absolutely more shares or, you know, absolutely rates. That, that money is never cheap. Um, the, the buy side community of kind of distressed investors looking for kind of rescue financing opportunities. Uh, it's not huge. Uh, I would say all the restructuring banks kind of know who they all are. And oftentimes these firms are already circling the situation already. Maybe they already have um, bought in a little, you know, some of the debt, some of the bonds already in the secondary market. Yeah. Uh, but you're, you're right. I mean, the returns have to be 
pretty pretty astronomical um yeah. oftentimes they care a lot about value so getting in at a good price they care about downside to make sure that things can't erode anymore um and then from there if there's kind of asymmetric upside those are usually situations that kind of distress investors right uh, generally like yeah and who are some of the more well-known distressed like it's like the apollos of the world like yeah Oak Tree. i would say yeah oak tree had a really big distressed group um they have a essentially a closed end fund i think when i was there they raised a seven billion dollar fund um and then subsequently raised a 10 billion dollar fund but uh yeah i'd say oak tree oak tree is really big in it um these days it's a lot of kind of smaller hedge funds as well um i think part of it is the distressed market is just not quite as big we've we've been on a quite a long bull run um and then a lot of a lot of well finances the buy side has, has kind of consolidated as well but a lot of um par performing funds they also have their own workout groups as well and so they may be kind of elbow to elbow with um with you know an oak tree or anchorage or yeah got it angela gordon or whoever yeah got it okay yeah. cool so i feel like most people at this point should have like a at least a very decent high level understanding of what, what restructuring is I feel like we did a good job explaining. I don't know, pat myself on the back, but yeah. <laughs> mainly you, but you know, I'm, I'm just here to help. But um, I know the other thing that a lot of students always really like care about um, when they think about, do I want to start an M&A or do I want to start in restructuring or, you know, the same decision that you went through. Um, they're thinking about the exit opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about what kind of exit opportunities you've seen for people, maybe both yourself, but also your friends that you went through restructuring with, like what kind of places are people typically going to with this skill set? Because the, the, it's a more technical group, right? And, yeah. and, and, and the modeling I think is, is a bit more complex and it's not exactly the same as your traditional banking models. And I know like even the interviews, I don't know about back then. It's funny. You mentioned the vault guy, dude, like, I think like no one reads the vault guy anymore because it's like too basic now, you know, like, wow. like, like but, but, but like, I, but, but no, but like back, back yeah. in our days in a way, like we read the vault guide, right? Like, I mean, you yeah. were, why you were even older, but, um, but like even nowadays, like a lot of these elite boutiques um, that specialize in restructuring, like the Evercores and the Molus and the Lazars of the world, like they ask some very technical uh, restructuring questions, but Anyway, I'm going on a tangent. The point is yeah. coming back though. Like people always want to know about the the exit opportunities. Like, what are some good fits for people that have this restructuring skill set? Or like, what where have you seen people kind of go after their restructuring banking years? Yeah, it's um, there's actually some diversity to it. Um, so I've seen kind of two routes. I would say those that continue to stay in finance buy side uh, from an investing kind of standpoint, and no, and a have a couple that went into sort of the operations uh, standpoint, kind of the chief restructuring officer type of route, which uh, which is fairly niche, I would say as well. Um, of the people that kind of went buy side, I would say I went almost all goes to kind of a credit oriented um, strategy, mm. whether whether it's only credit or not. Um, just depends. I, I, you know, like I, I went to high yield and loans and 
those strategies were credit only, but I've had friends that kind of went into private equity with a distressed for control slant. Um, and I have another friend that kind of went to a hedge fund, but invested across the capital structure, um, could also do equities as well. So it really, really does kind of vary. Um, I would say some of them probably, um, have gone into private equity as well, although there may be kind of better groups for that. It really depends. The PE space is actually quite, quite large. So I don't want right. to brush everything with the same, same brush. Um, and then a couple of friends kind of went into sort of the operational advisory type business. Um, one of them did banking for a little bit longer. And then one of them went to a shop that essentially uh, places chief restructuring officers. And so this guy will kind of parachute down into a company um, that's going through distressed and essentially be CRO and be able to call the shots. So that's um, a temporary position that distressed companies hire onto the management team while yeah. they're going through the restructuring process. Yeah, it's an option. Um, it may not be for every corporation. It may sometimes be for smaller ones, private companies, for example, ones that may not have uh, borrowed money in terms of loans or bonds, but maybe owe money because of other reasons, whether it's uh, litigation yeah. or whether it's they owe employees certain amounts, um, kind of more obscure situations. And so that guy's really in the weeds for sure. Like looking through the cash management systems of these companies and uh, yeah. Got it. Okay, yeah. cool. So there are so many more questions I want to ask you, but I just took a look. And I realize I'm getting a bunch of questions from nice. the students that are watching this. And by the way, I just want to say this interview, because I do these like every week, this interview is probably one of the best, like most well attended <laughs> live streams I've done. So people are really interested in this Sweet. topic. And there's a lot of questions. So I'm going to like, just try to go through some of these questions. I want to make sure that we can answer as many of them as we can. And then um, maybe let's just do like kind of like a rapid fire round if you want. Absolutely. Um, cool. So I'm going to go, let me start with the ones on YouTube. So, all right. So Michael asks a couple questions. If you want to get to them um, one, can you talk about the difference differences between restructuring and M&A? I think we kind of already talked about that. So I think we can skip, skip over that. Right. Um, I think M&A is pretty self-explanatory, right, Michael? Like that's like when a company is buying another company or a company is selling itself to another company. That's like a very standard situation where restructuring is when, the company's distressed and needs to work out what's going on between them and their lenders, right? Um, the second question he had though was, can you talk a little about your transition from Oak Tree or D.E. Shaw um, to Wharton and just kind of what it was like as a candidate? Um, so I yeah. guess he's, he's kind of interested about like, you know, experience with uh, applying to business school and stuff like that. It was actually, there's a lot of people in, in finance when I was applying in 2010 coming from finance. And so being uh, in FI side finance, having banking kind of coming from uh, state university um, in the US, I, it, that just didn't differentiate myself quite enough. Um, I, I felt like I had to hustle pretty hard um, to do find some other things on the resume to, to kind of uh, be a, be a solid candidate for business school. The actual transition to business school was, was fine. I mean, it was, uh, essentially a two year kind of choose your own adventure, um, type of thing and, and very much a well-needed 
uh, reset and and good for a kind of perspective setting. I would say yeah. after after just being in in set programs. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, do you do you recommend that people go to business school or I know that's always going to be the so, next question, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say the, the the two hardest things in my career so far is number one, I, I would say getting that first job out of college. Everyone will will be fine at the end of the day there. Um, the second hardest or maybe the actually the hardest is kind of making that transition from pre MBA type candidate to a post MBA type candidate or an associate to a VP, for example. Um, I would say for people that can make that jump without going to business school and for people that would be excited to do that jump and don't need a reset, don't, wouldn't necessarily value some of the, the other um, softer kind of intangible aspects of going to business school, then I wouldn't, then I probably wouldn't advise going. Um, for, yeah, for me, for me, it was, it was a needed change. Um, and frankly, at that point, I didn't know if I wanted to go back into finance and stay in or, or what. Uh, I just wanted the optionality, to be honest. Got it. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, let me go to the next question. So this might be a more of a finance 101 question, but anytime you've seen distressed companies issue more debt, and why would they do this? I guess the question is, why would a distressed company issue more debt? Got it. I guess they would do uh, that to refinance their the 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 existing debt that they have just to kind of like replace yeah. it with new debt that matures later, right? Just like extend the runway, so to speak. Is that right? Ext extending the runway, yeah. So oftentimes, companies borrow substantial amounts. Um, they can't pay it all back at once. Think about, I don't know, a homeowner having a mortgage all due at once. Um, you kind of want to spread it out. So maybe one option is to raise more debt. Um, to refinance it out and kind of kick the can down the road. Maybe you raise a little bit more debt to pay off some of it. Um, and oftentimes when, when debt comes due and it needs to be kind of refinanced, if that happens to be during the middle of a kind of a pandemic or in the middle of an economic recession, yeah. it's really hard to raise that money. Um, and so maybe you can raise a little bit then and then kind of wait and so having have buying yourself time uh, having that liquidity runway as i call it is super important yeah okay that makes sense um this next question from ahmed this is less of a restructuring specific question but more of a general career advice question i guess um he's doing wondering if you have any networking advice he's an incoming freshman he's wondering um if you have any advice for reaching out to bankers i don't know you've probably been on the other side of, yeah. uh, of people reaching out to you to network. Like, do you have any um, things that you really liked when people did that or things you really hated is like, don't do this, you know, when you're networking, for example? <laughs> it's always better to have a, have a warm, warm lead. And so I would say um, as you network and you have to start somewhere. So maybe this advice is more applicable to once you kind of get the, the wheel moving. Um, I always ask two questions. Um, who else uh, would you recommend I talk to about kind of the, the topics that we've talked about today? Yeah. Um, and number two, um, how are ways that I can help you essentially? Maybe you might also have some ideas as well. And now oftentimes, you know, you may not bring a lot to the table, but uh, just the recognition that it's a two-way 
uh, networking event, not just uh, completely picking the brain of, of the other person, which sometimes is totally fine. Um, right. Kind of shows a lot more EQ and kind of shows a lot more long-termism. Um, yeah. And I think that that helps uh, helps the networking. Networking never never really stops. It just comes in waves for the most part. Right, so, no, you, you bring yeah. up a really interesting point, which is in the business world, the the when people say networking, not in like the investment recruiting context, but in like the business world, People kind of think of it as like a two-way street. It's like, hey, you want to network because who knows? Like if I help this person now, maybe one day they can help me with something else, right? Yeah. But yeah. when it comes to investment banking recruiting, it's kind of difficult because, I mean, as a college student, it's like, what do you have to offer to this other person? Um, right. So that, that, right. That's, that's an interesting point. Um, I'm trying to think if I were a banker and a student asked me that, I'm trying to think what I would ask them for. <laughs> um, but uh, but no, that's that 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 that's it's a good point though. You're showing maturity by just um, even just the gesture of offering, even if you don't have anything that yep. you can do for them. It, it's nice because most people probably aren't doing that, right? Um, exactly. Cool. Let me move over to this other question. So uh, on LinkedIn here, Josh asks. What is one recommendation you may have for someone like myself trying to improve as a future prospective fintech professional with regards to the finance world? Joshua, you might have to clarify this question. I'm not really sure what you're asking. Like trying to improve as a future prospective fintech professional. Like maybe you can rephrase your question and we'll come back around to it because I'm not really sure what you're getting at. Um, let me move to, unless you understand it well, but I, I didn't really get it. Um, let me move to another question. Zion asks, for an undergrad looking to become a restructuring analyst, what skills and experiences on the resume will make him or her stand out as a candidate? That's a good one. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, will didn't really do anything in college. He was pre-med, like you said. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the guys that, I, that were in my restructuring class, um, of the ones that came to business school and, and got off to a pretty good uh pretty good start they had a just a generally a good conceptual understanding of capital structure of 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 debt versus equity of of some of that that those what i would there's more academic topics that you learn in finance mm -hmm. um that got them off they got them a lot of credibility that got them off to a pretty good start too um ultimately none of this is rocket science you can figure it out at some point along your journey, but um, showing an interest is probably, um, probably yeah. the best, yeah. I'm gonna chime in here. I would say like, for most college students, you're not expected to have like restructuring experience, you know, like that's just, that's not, um, that's not reasonable, right? Now, we do have clients that we've worked with that have done like sophomore summer internships at Aries in their, rotational program or you know in their credit group credit investing group so obviously that would be i think highly relevant if you've done any type of like credit or debt related internships which i would say are less common than things yeah. you could do on like the equity side right but even if it's not like if you just have other finance internships you worked at a small investment bank or you worked at a small private equity firm like i think that's totally cool too right? i've also seen um this is rare. Like there's a lot of student run investment funds on most campuses now, but I think at like a couple of schools, I've actually seen 
um, restructuring clubs. Like someone started a restructuring club, which I don't really know what they do in the club, but like maybe they just like <laughs> read up on restructuring deals and talk about it. But um, but yeah, like if you start a club like that on campus, like if you're really dead set on doing restructuring, I, I would think that would be a pretty cool thing that would make you stand out because most people don't have that. Right? So th those are some ideas, but um, again, you don't have to, I don't think you have to have restructuring specific experience to go into restructuring at the college level. Um, probably later on as a professional, yeah. like post MBA, that would be a different story because if you didn't have, you know, yeah. relevant experience pre MBA, like Oak Street's probably not hiring you back, right? Or, you know, right. some uh, jobs that you had. Um, so hopefully that helps, Zion. Um, Oliver asks, I have no idea what Oliver is asking, to be honest, but hopefully you do. He says, this is this sounds like a technical question is the fulcrum debtor the one who gets debt for equity swap um what if somebody higher on the credit structure wanted an equity stake how is that usually negotiated yeah do you know i think i kind of get what he's what's going on yeah the, the fulcrum security is often the party in control and i guess what what that means is that the the value of the company it's probably reduced from what it was you know years before um has shrunk to a level that it only covers some of the creditors um if you assume that the creditors above are, are getting getting the full money back and so his second question of are the senior creditors if they want equity um what can they do it, I think it's a little bit situational, but I think by default, they don't get equity, right? The fulcrum's in charge. And if the senior creditors want equity, they should have purchased equity, or maybe they can purchase some of the fulcrum securities. Oftentimes these all trade and the fulcrum security can convert into equity or, or um, I guess the, the last quick answer is a little bit technical, the, the senior the senior guys can offer some sort of rights offering where um, where they put down new money. If you bring new money to the situation, that usually gets you kind of more influence and you can kind of dictate the way the restructuring is going to go. And so if you want equity, maybe that that's the way you can you can do it. Got yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Dude, I'm not a restructuring banker, so that's totally cool. <laughs> but I'm glad you're here, man. So this is what I'm saying. I need someone more qualified in here to talk about this stuff. Um, so uh, Brian asks, how do lenders like the covenant light agreements? How much pushback is there? Uh, there's not enough pushback. And I would say over the past seven years, um, they haven't put enough thought in it. So they're not thinking, oh, this is something I dislike. Um, you know, today today's a crappy day at work. They're just not thinking about it. There's the lender community um, for leverage loans specifically is quite uh, fragmented. Yeah. And I would say 70% of the market is CLOs, which are investment vehicles that kind of abide by predetermined rules. Um, so they're not necessarily pushing back on a deal by deal basis or kind of treating treating each kind of loan um, maybe with the duty and care that, that they should. With yeah. that said, the you know the the music's been been kind of chugging along for for quite a while um I, you know with the exception for last year of which the default rate probably wasn't as high as was as what a lot of people were expecting um 
things continue to plug along and there's a lot of cash out there. So covenant, covenant light kind of sucks. Um, right now I'm, I'm trying to look at a more opportunistic strategy and the opportunities we look at, um, there's just not a lot of events that could bring me to the table and, and allow me to kind of exert a little bit more influence into how I could be getting my money back as, as a creditor. So oftentimes it triggers, I just have to wait till the loan comes due and that could be four five, six years out, in which case the world could, could be completely different for some of these companies. And so covenant light kind of, kind of, kind of stinks. Um, yeah. So, yeah. but it is, it's just the virtue of all these loans these days. You bring up a good point. I mean, everyone's always trying to predict what's going to happen in markets. I mean, this bull run has been going yeah. on since, oh, eight, really, since, <laughs> since I graduated. And uh, yeah. there were definitely multiple times along the way where I was like, this, this, this has got to stop soon, right? And then and I've been wrong every single time. So uh, I don't know. Ask Jerome Powell. He'll know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He'll control it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Chris asked a little bit of a different question, but not sure if Will mentioned this before, but what prompted the switch from pre-med to finance? Um, I think it was just FOMO, right? <laughs> I don't know if you have a- uh, It's mainly FOMO. Um, you know, I'll give you a slight, slightly more context. Um, at the time I was, uh, I just finished an internship in, in kind of at an insurance company. Uh, I knew I didn't want to go, go back there. I uh, was going back in my fourth year of college and uh, I was already one semester behind. I spent my third, uh, my third year, I spent my last semester in London. And so that kind of sets you off one semester um, as well for pre-med and, uh, and kind of that FOMO kicked in. I would, I saw my brother-in-law who was actually going through residency at the time and he was an anesthesiologist, which is one of the better kind of um, better compensated specialties in medicine, I would say, vis-a-vis -vis kind of the, the time and lifestyle. Uh, but I think he had kind of a rough rotation. I think it was like through like a burn trauma unit or something like that. And he, it was fine. He wanted to switch though, but to switch, he had to kind of finish out that year and then wait another year to apply to a different specialty program. And just the lack of flexibility was a little bit of a turnoff. Um, more more than anything so i was like if i if i want to go back into medicine all i need to do is just take another semester of classes and take the mcats it's not that big of a deal the hard part's mainly over but um you know if i want to do banking now's the time to do it uh, give it a shot i could always go back so that that was kind of my mentality at the time plus i guess if you're going to do medicine what is it you got to go to med school, then you got to do residency. And by the time you really start to make money, you're what, like six or seven years out of school or something? Yeah, yeah. Versus going to Probably. finance, you're making six figures right away. So that's true. Course, yeah, right? that's true. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yes. But, no, but for a lot of people, that's like a yeah. real thing. It's like, do I really want to wait six or seven years before I can start making a living? You know, it's, it's, um, it's a long time. Yeah, it probably does turn turn the marginal person off the, the doctors i know now they're they're not motivated by money but you're absolutely right they're not they're, and now they're making very very good money and, and and it seems to come very easy for them without yeah. without long hours or anything like that yeah. you know banking you have your your early years which is uh which can be quite rough um but yeah the compensation usually comes with comes with it. it's pretty good people that are motivated yeah. by money probably aren't going into the 
medicine or they're not going if they're if they are they're not going into it for the right reasons and then correct all, all the greedy money hungry people are going to Wall Street, right <laughs> yeah or tech now apparently <laughs> or tech or tech yeah. um let's see okay uh pat asked any tips for someone in corp dev m a looking to transition over to ib slash p yeah i mean i'll take this one pat i mean if you're in corp dev you know I don't know how long you've been in Corp Dev, but it sounds like you've graduated and you're working in Corp Dev. Um, I think the longer you've been out of school, the harder it becomes to transition to IB. So like if you're only like one or two years out of school, we just helped a client transition from Corp Dev um, into banking. So he's going to Piper Stanley, for example, which is you know a pretty good middle market bank, right? So it can be done, um, but you know it's going to require a lot of uh, you know, networking and interview prep and, you know, all the same things that you would have had to do back in college, right? Which if you're looking for help for that, um, you know, we can definitely help you with that. Just like reach out to our team you can book a call with us. Um, but also right now, like if you are looking to lateral into banking, now is actually a good time to do it because all these banks are super busy. There's all these facts going on. Analysts and, and associates are getting crushed. You guys probably saw the Goldman survey, right? Where you know, the team analysts complain about how bad the working conditions are. And there, I've been seeing a lot of firms um, actually post job openings for lateral hires and even like hiring full-time first-year analysts for um, seniors who are graduating in about a month. Usually like firms aren't recruiting this late in the process, right? They have that figured out like in a, a year and a half. So there's a lot of opportunity to move over right now if you have the right profile and if you prepare the right way. So um but yeah again it depends if you're a little bit older i would say you might have to you might have to consider going going back to business school like that is one good reason to go back to business school is to kind of like make that career pivot right i'm sure well you had a lot of people at warden who were doing that right if you go to if you go to business school at least when i was graduating and you wanted to go into banking after uh you would get an offer <laughs> everyone and and I, i'd imagine now it's even the same trends everyone just wants to go to tech essentially mm. um there's yeah. a food fight for private equity and kind of some of the buy side roles, but banking, yeah, banking, you should be able to, to land something there. Yeah, business for sure. especially if you go to a good school, right? Um, yeah. Just shy of three years into the role. Yeah, so I mean, dude, I think you're, you're like right on that, that edge of like, I don't think it's, I think it's still doable, but you probably don't want to make way too much longer if you really want to make that jump especially if you don't want to have to go back to business school to do it right so anyway reach out to our team if you want and uh, we're happy to talk to you more about it all right um so let's see i think we got like one or two more questions and i want to make sure that we finish up in the next five to ten minutes here um zaldivar sorry i'm probably butchering your name but zaldivar asks going into left fin this summer wondering as to how you see making the decision of private debt versus private equity hmm. they're two very different things um yeah. for me it was always people always asked why credit and so i usually had a had a good answer for for that yeah. uh, i would say both are both are similar in that there's a, a deal aspect you got to kind of be hungry and find the next opportunity to lend or the next company to buy yeah. both require kind of a lot of networking i would say private credit you're kind of focused a little bit more on downside risks um 
you know, private equity are kind of focused on growth vectors. So a little bit of a different animal there. Um, both are great. I would, I wouldn't steer you one way or another. Lifebin will lend way, um, quite well to private credit for sure. Um, but obviously it's, it's involved in every private equity transaction as well. So, right. Yeah. I think it probably also depends on like which left thing group you're in. Like my understanding is some banks, um, their left thing groups, they actually have their analysts run the models, whereas some left thing groups don't really do the modeling. And so obviously if you're not doing the modeling, um, not saying it can't be done, but it'll be a bit more difficult because I know uh, for private equity, at least, because a lot of the private equity firms are looking for that hardcore modeling experience they want to know like oh you know how to do lbo like in fact almost all pe firms have lbo modeling tests nowadays right i don't know what the private um credit firms are doing but uh so that's something to take into account um yeah. michael asked any good tips for networking with restructuring bankers as a MA intern slash kind of going for full time i mean i don't really think it really changes michael i don't know I, not not to not to cut you off, but like, I don't really think networking with restructuring bankers is really any different than networking with any other banker, right? Except like, no, read up on some restructuring news and trends and make sure you're at least like remotely knowledgeable about it and don't get caught, you know, like if they ask you a basic question you can't answer, then you're going to sound like you don't know what you're talking about. But other than that, I don't know, I can't really think of anything that'd be different. Yeah. Yeah, I know the restructuring world has various kind of conferences and there's some like trade rags that you can read up on stuff like DebtWire um, as one that's uh, fairly basic. Um, but what's yeah, networking. What's the publication called? DebtWire. DebtWire? Okay. Yeah. yeah. There you um, go. That's a good tip for you guys. Yeah, but networking's <laughs> no different. Um, yeah, it's a small community, so... I think if you find mentorship within it, um, especially someone that's uh, kind of risen through the ranks of, of a restructuring shop, for example, um, they'll kind of know everyone in, in the space and know what you know, events to attend, et cetera. Yep. Uh, okay, I'm going to do one last one and then we're going to wrap up here. Um, this question says, CFA charter holder or no? If yes, can you talk about experience? I guess he's asking if you're a CFA charter holder. I don't think you really need a CFA for what you're doing, right? Or do you? No, you do not. Um, so I did take level one of the CFA. And after passing that, I actually decided to apply to business school at that point in time. Um, some mutual funds, they require, or, or some long only type investment firms um, may require a CFA. Um, but usually it's something that you can get while on the job as well. And so not necessarily a requirement for entry. Yeah. It's not a prerequisite. Um, and like you said, it's for mutual funds, more so for mutual funds, less so like if you're doing like a hedge fund or a private equity firm, that type of deal. Right. Yeah. I yeah. I only see that as often. I feel like on, on like when we typically talk about the buy side, like we, we're not typically okay. mutual funds in that in that conversation, I feel like. Um, yeah. Nothing wrong yeah. with mutual fund, but it's just not where most investment banking analysts are going, I feel like, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's a very difficult test. And so I think it garners a lot of respect, but in terms of uh, the use ap applicability on the job, it's it's a little bit difficult. It's a bit 
academic, I would say. Um, yeah. Cool, man. Well, uh, yeah. any, um, let's part with this, dude. Any, so this is a question I always ask. Like, is there one piece of advice that you would have given yourself or you would have given the younger you from like 15 years ago when you first started, like when you were sitting in our viewer's shoes and you're just starting out embarking on this career. I know you've come full circle now, 15 years later, right? So you've learned a ton along the way. Hindsight's 2020. Is there anything that's like, hey, I wish someone had told me this. And if they had told me this 15 years ago, like that would have made my life so much better, or I would have made much better decisions, or it would have saved me a lot of trouble, like anything like that. Yeah. So so generally I I, I try not to live with with much regret, but what I didn't appreciate, and I think it touches on a little bit of the networking conversation we talked about earlier, um, was that sort of the transactional nature of, of kind of my, my networking pre say business school, um, probably didn't open up as many kind of doors. I don't know. Cause it, it, it's just a alternative kind of universe. The, the story I like to tell is actually one of, uh, one of my coworkers who actually went to business school with me. And when we were graduating in 2013, um, I think he was interviewing at Tomo Bravo or something like that. And he was kind of bummed out. He didn't get it for whatever reason. It had nothing to do with his qualifications. I think they were just moving in a different direction in terms of hiring needs or something, but, um, he's the type of guy that, that, that definitely has that growth mentality and, and, he didn't take it personally, but he was at actually like, how can I help you? Let's, let's uh, continue to keep in touch. He moved to San Francisco, took a different job. He hated it for a couple of years, but during those two years, um, he, you know, reached out to, to, to Toma Bravo um, a couple of times. And it turned out that two years after graduating business school, um, they needed someone to uh, work in their software team. So they hired him and Within a couple of years after that, he's he's running um, their small cap kind of private equity fund as well. And so it's basically, you know, 2021 now is like a eight year thing in the making um, is the way I see it. Um, so <laughs> had I, uh, the advice I'd give to myself, I guess, um, starting out my career was kind of having that growth mentality in terms of thinking kind of what's possible if I, if I treat everything more as a, a long-term relationship versus uh, just a, just a transaction. Um, and it's, it's easy to get into that mindset, particularly in New York where, where it's very much a kind of a hustle and bustle type of uh, type of culture. Yeah. That's, um, that's gold right there. Um, I don't think, uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, especially nowadays when, cause I, I don't think you even realize I mean, I, I live this every day because I'm working with students and trying to help them get into banking. But like the amount of networking that students have to do nowadays to get into banking is like pretty absurd. <laughs> and and uh, it's, it's way more than we ever did back in our days. But when you have to do so much networking on top of uh, keeping your grades up in school, on top of getting relevant internship experience, on top of doing clubs, on top of like learning all your technicals and your behaviors and whatever, like it's really easy to get into this mode of just making it very transactional, right? And just like, you're just trying to 
kind of like yeah burn not burn through but like you know just go through all your leads yeah. as, as you can um but you never know you never know when when these contacts can come back and help you later on down the road um, yeah and that's how real networking is supposed to be done which is like more of this long-term approach and you help me and i help you type of thing right and so that's great advice man and yeah. uh, a lot of wisdom there uh, gained through the 15 years of um, uh, uh, wealth of experience that you had. Um, look, I don't want to keep you any longer. Um, I'm super appreciative of you coming on here and talking to people. Like I said, this is probably the most well-attended live that I've done. Right. Uh, and we've been doing these for, I don't know, probably at least three to six months now. I've, I've kind of lost track. Um, so I'm sure people got a lot out of this. Um, so really grateful for you coming on here, talking about your experience, sharing insights. And uh, guys, if you guys, hopefully you guys enjoyed this. If you guys need help with the must making recruiting, um, you know, little shameless plug at the end, feel free to reach out to our team. Uh, you can book a free strategy session with us, www.wallstreetmastermind.com slash apply. Um, the street's abbreviated to ST, right? So it's wallstmastermind.com slash apply. And, uh, you know, happy to talk to you about whatever your situation is whatever type of bank you're trying to get into, whatever it is that you think you need help with right now, how do you kind of, you know, attack the problem? Um, we've worked with almost 400 students at this point and uh, we have 90% success rate in terms of helping people get into banking. So, um, you know, I like to think that we know what we're doing, right? So if you guys want to, feel free to book a call, reach out to us. And uh, other than that, um, I'll try to do more of these interviews in the future for you guys because obviously it's quite popular, this thing. So, Will, <laughs> Thank you again Thank you. for coming on here. Um, and uh, let's grab another drink sometime soon. Absolutely. Appreciate it. It's good to see you uh, See you in your true element. This is great. <laughs> it. I don't know my true element. I'm not sure I'm this, but um, no, this was fun. I, I, I love yeah. uh, bringing my friends on here and just, I feel like I'm just hanging out with my friends and, and other people can benefit too. So that's awesome. I had a great time. So the honor's all mine. So anytime, if I can be helpful, let me know. All right, man. Sounds good. All right. Well, guys, that'll be it for today. Thanks for tuning in and uh, we'll be back next time. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode. Interested in discovering how you can get personalized one-on-one coaching from Wall Street Mastermind to help you beat out the massive amount of competition out there? Head on over to www.wallstreetmastermind.com slash apply. And the street is abbreviated to ST, so it's really wall, stmastermind.com slash apply. And our team looks forward to speaking with you.